Dear Father, we ask that you would be with us just now as we discuss further the book of Genesis. There are so many questions we have, God. Please open our minds, enlighten us. Help us to see your actions behind the scenes as you dealt with this great rebellion. We love you, God. Amen. Well, we finished off last time really spending uh, all of our time talking about the tree and what happened and how much insight that gives us into uh, this rebellion in heaven and what the issues were. I tried to find some pictures uh, on the web about this rebellion in heaven and uh, they're pretty much all something like this, suggesting, you know, this was a, uh, oh, I don't know, swords, lightning bolts, tanks, uh, that kind of a thing. But I think as we discussed last time, it's pretty clear uh, this rebellion was not fought uh, in terms of might. I mean, the devil concedes that God has the power. Uh, you read in James, and when the devil thinks about God's power, he trembles. Okay, so the issue here was not over uh, the devil thinking, well, maybe I can, I can take over uh, God's kingdom by force. Okay, that was not the issue. And uh, so what was the issue? Well, we kind of discussed last time, it was not, uh, you know, Satan didn't decide, uh, he didn't have enough precious jewels and he decided to chip away some of the gold streets in heaven, hoard some of that gold. Or uh, it wasn't that he had an adulterous relationship with another angel or maybe started smoking or uh, started drinking too much, much Starbucks or, you know, we could go through a whole list of a whole bunch of things. Those were clearly not the issues. The issues were Satan really desired to sit as God in the minds of the intelligent creatures of the universe. He even asked Jesus, remember, to get down on his knees and worship him. So it is an issue of Satan wanting to be enthroned in place of God, the one in power. And he wants worship. And he did. He kind of created this environment where a horrible picture of God emerged. And so that the affections were turned away from God and towards Satan. And so I think the, the other question we really didn't deal with that, that comes up is, isn't there any other way that God could have dealt with this problem? Um, and what would you have done? You see within the mind of Lucifer these, these thoughts going the wrong way. And you see him spreading, disseminating these lies uh, among the other intelligent beings, just like he did with Eve at the tree. Uh, didn't God have any other options for dealing with this problem? Um, have you thought of any other options? What could God have done? Um, why didn't he just kill Lucifer? If you were an angel in heaven and uh, all of a sudden Lucifer's not there, um, would you have any problem with that? Wouldn't you begin to wonder a little bit, well, what happens if I have a bad thought? Is God just going to eliminate me too? And uh, wouldn't fear then spring from that entire, I mean, does God just snap his fingers and eliminate someone? And I think fear would have developed among the other angels, would have been probably the worst thing uh, that could have happened. Now, here's a more uh, diabolical option. Couldn't God have eliminated Lucifer and then within the minds of each of his intelligent creatures eliminated the memory of Lucifer? So now Lucifer's gone and no one knows about it because no one remembers Lucifer. Wouldn't that have been a good option? Well, does God act in that way? I mean, um, God's character, as we'll discuss all the way through, is really contrary to those methods. 
What, was God op- what were God's options? Well, as we discussed, he put this tree in the middle of the garden. He dealt with the problem head on. And as I would see the tree, the tree was really there for Adam and Eve's protection, not as an arbitrary test of obedience, because the only way they could encounter Satan was to go to that tree. And the only reason God left it even as a possibility that they would encounter Satan is if they disobeyed and they rebelled and they went to the tree to hear what he had to say. All right, so in the minds, again, if you're an angel and you see Lucifer doing all this stuff, you're not sure if the lies are true or not, uh, it wouldn't seem fair if he's just banished to the farthest planet of the universe, no one's allowed any contact with him. The only way to deal with it uh, was to provide evidence. Tim Jennings tells a story that I think is is very effective in this. Imagine that you are um, uh, in a church, and let's say your brother is the head elder, and your dad is the senior pastor, and your brother, who you've always known for years and years to be an entirely reliable, trustworthy individual, uh, suddenly comes up to you one day and says, you know what, I've discovered something very troubling. Uh, I'd like you to pray for dad, because you see he's been embezzling money. Uh, from the church offerings. I mean, how shocking that would be. I mean, you've known your dad for a long time to be such a trustworthy individual. So you go up to your dad and uh, you say, you know, dad, uh, my brother, your son, just said you've been stealing money from the church offerings. So he didn't, right? But he tells you, no, it's not true. I haven't been doing that. So you go back to your brother, relieved, and you say, look, I just talked with dad and he told me it's not true. And then your brother says, well, that's just the thing. Dad is lying. Well, what do you do? What if the, the church pastor, the rumors now are circulating, false rumors about the pastor, maybe he gets up uh, for the sermon that week and he says, you know what, there have been these rumors circulating that I've been stealing money and I just want to tell you it's absolutely not true. Would everyone file out of church believing that it wasn't true? Would you put money in the offering plate or would you have doubts about it? There would be doubts. And so really the only way, what would be the only way to deal with it? It would be to provide evidence. You bring an accountant in, you go by every single dollar, line by line, it's all accounted for, and then the pastor would be exonerated. So the ultimate evidence, making this parallel again uh, to our situation, the ultimate evidence God provided was Jesus Christ. He came in human form to completely shatter every single one of these lies. Now God is providing evidence all the way through the Old Testament, And we'll talk about that, but it really culminated in Jesus Christ. So the tree was in the middle of the garden for their protection. All right, but they decided, Eve decided to go and encounter Satan. We know what happened. So taking in this larger picture of things is very helpful. I'll just go through a few verses here. But the earth is a spectacle. The Greek word is just like theater. Um, A spectacle for the whole world of angels. They're learning from the experience of planet Earth. And the good news, I won't read this whole verse in 1 Peter, but even the good news, notice, are things which even the angels would like to understand. We'll discuss what is the good news, but the angels, through this whole experience of planet Earth, uh, have much learning and understanding. And this verse is shocking, but listen to this very carefully in Colossians 1. Through the Son, then, uh, God decided to bring the whole universe back to himself. God made peace, through his son's blood on the cross, and so brought back to himself all things, both on earth and in heaven. So the death of Jesus Christ 
has more to do than with just you and I. It has to do with settling, remember we read the war that began in heaven. Somehow God's death uh, even brought peace throughout the entire universe. Who are we fighting against? We are not fighting against human beings, but against the wicked spiritual forces in the heavenly world, the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this dark age. The Bible is just, so much invites us. Let's just not think about us, me, 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 my salvation. There's a bigger picture that is going on here. And so we discussed last time, the sin problem ultimately began with the very destructive and harmful lies about the kind of person God is. Those were believed. And if that's believed, the only natural thing that could happen is love and trust with God is broken. And then that leads to uh, rebellion. And it was a horrible rebellion that happens. But all of this was answered by Jesus Christ. It's amazing how many things were answered by the death of Jesus. Is God a destructive tyrant? No. I mean, the, the character of God, the character of Satan were fully exposed at the cross. And even the question, does sin lead to death? Remember Satan said, no, you eat this fruit, you won't die. Uh, I think we learned something very important that answers that question at the cross as well. So we'll, we'll have to enlarge on this picture as we go through. Notice, when Adam and Eve sinned, the title deed to planet Earth was handed over to Satan. And so when Jesus comes, he's just about to die, he says, now the ruler of this world will be overthrown. We'll need to spell that out. The Son of God appeared for this very reason, to destroy what the devil had done. And what the devil had done is to paint a God out to be a monster. Jesus himself became like them and shared their human nature. He did this so that through his death he might destroy the devil. And of course, Satan didn't die at the cross, but his lies were destroyed. In Colossians 2, he stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. That's kind of interesting. I mean, the, the cross, if you were just there, it could seem like, boy, what a humiliating defeat for Jesus. But notice who was defeated at the cross all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority. He marched them naked through the street. I mean, you cannot believe that God is a destructive tyrant if you've just watched God in human form die, and as he dies, he says, Father, forgive them. I mean, what a picture of God was revealed there. So Jesus came as the light of the world because our minds, their minds, have been kept in the dark by the evil God of this world. I think the Bible makes so much more sense if we take in this larger picture. But I want to pick off from there, or leave it off from there. So uh, we've uh, left the garden, and uh, Abel and Cain, first two sons, and everything just falls apart immediately. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why that scowl on your face? If you had done the right thing, you would be smiling. But because you have done evil, sin is crouching at your door. It wants to rule you, but you must overcome it. And I find this description of Cain uh, very enlightening here in 1 John. For this is the message which you have heard from the first, that we should love one another. That's all God has ever asked, that we love one another. And not be like Cain, who took his nature and got his motivation from the evil one and slew his brother. And why did he slay him? Because his deeds were wicked and malicious, and his brothers were righteous. Notice, who did Cain get his motivation from? from Satan. He was of the same mindset as Satan. And so what we see from 
Cain murdering Abel, and up until the flood is the, the grip that Satan had on planet Earth got stronger and stronger and stronger until finally, just a few chapters later, Genesis 6, God saw that human evil was out of control. People thought evil, imagined evil, 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 from morning to night. God was sorry that he had made the human race in the first place. It broke his heart. Horrible. Now, what do you think about this? God was sorry that he made the human race. This, this almost kind of sounds like uh, God saying, uh, oops, um, didn't know this was going to happen, um, made a mistake. How do we take some of these uh, verses? Well, there are lots of parallel ones. Let me just give you one here. After the flood, God says, whenever I cover the sky with clouds and the rainbow appears, I will remember my promise to you and to all the animals that a flood will never again destroy all living beings. So was God many times about ready to send a flood and destroy the whole world, but then he saw the rainbow and remembered, oh, that's right, I'm not going to destroy the world with a flood. Did God really need that reminder? No, we needed the reminder, right? So all of this is expressed in, in human language, all right, so that we can understand. But the whole world was evil, and so we have the flood. And maybe I'll just ask you, um, you know, the whole world was destroyed, eight got on the boat. How can we uh, maintain a picture of God who's just like Jesus when we read a story like the flood? Um, do any of you have thoughts or uh, suggestions? Uh, are you all okay with the flood? It's not, uh, seems like a, a reasonable thing or um, how do you put that together? Did you have a comment? Traumatic. Traumatic. Yeah. It's bothersome, isn't it? I guess we'd want to think uh, about what were God's options at this point. Um, I find uh, a couple of verses very helpful in this, in this context. Genesis 6, 9. Noah had no faults. Did Noah have no faults? We know he had a little problem with alcohol apparently after the flood. But anyway, he had no faults. <laughs> and was the only good man of his time. He lived in fellowship with God, but everyone else was evil in God's sight, and violence had spread everywhere. And again, the Lord said to Noah, go into the boat with your whole family. I have found that you are the only one in all the world who does what is right. Now, do you think this is uh, exaggeration in the part of the Bible here? Was Noah really the only good man? I think there were lots of uh, righteous people in that day. Children? Well, yeah. How do we know? Uh, how many kids do you think said, uh, boy, you know, Noah makes sense. I'd like to get on the boat. But their parents didn't, like, didn't let them. Absolutely. But what's, what's the best evidence that there weren't 7,000 righteous men and women during that age? I mean, how many boats did Noah build? One boat. Don't you think if God had known, boy, there are just lots and lots of good people, I'm going to build a whole fleet. He built one boat. I mean, notice, uh, Noah preached this message well over 100 years. How many people got on the boat? Only Noah and his family. So I think uh, this is quite uh, accurate. Noah really was the only good man. Now, just imagine, what would have happened? God's down to one man and his family. What would have happened had God not sent the flood? Noah dies, the last man, with a trusting relationship with God. What do you think would have happened? 
Imagine an, uh, an earth where not a single person has a trusting relationship, a true knowledge of God. What do you think happens to a world in that kind of a setting? Do you think we'd be here today discussing the character of God had God not sent the flood to rescue the last man? I really would see the flood as a rescue mission. God's down to one man. And, I mean, all of the evidence, what we, we've just said, the sin problem was answered by Jesus Christ. God had not yet come in human form. He had not yet provided the answer to all of these horrible lies. All right? And so, I mean, if, if Noah is not rescued, God has lost connection with a human family and all of these answers would not be provided. I mean, God would have lost the war in heaven, it would seem. Remember the angels watching all of this. All right, so God has to, you know, 100 years or more, this message is preached. Come on, guys, get on the boat. Anyone could have gotten on the boat, right? You didn't have to necessarily, was there any criteria given? Well, you have to be a good person to get on the boat. What about Ham? All right? And also, uh, not necessarily, I mean, don't you think maybe there were some good kids wanted to get on the boat? So because they were destroyed in the flood doesn't mean they'll be lost either. But one man got on the boat. God rescued the last man to get them out. But I think the other question comes up is, if, well, if, if the answer hadn't been given yet, why wasn't the answer given yet? Why hadn't Jesus come during just before the time of the flood? Do you think uh, the people of that time would have welcomed and would have loved the kind of God that Jesus revealed? Do you think it would have been a radical um, Jesus movement? God comes. Do you think they would have killed him? Yeah, a rebellious generation. Don't you think they would have hated that picture of God just as much as they did 2,000 years later? So why wait thousands of years? Why not come sooner? And here's one reason that appeals to me. Again, imagine you're an angel. You're watching all of this going on, and now finally God is just about ready to enter the womb of one of his children. And maybe the angels are thinking, you know what? Uh, here's why he's coming. It looks like God is finally being successful. I mean, look at those people down there. Did they go to church? Yeah, very faithfully. I mean, they always met with Jesus in the synagogue. Um, did they pay tithe? Jesus even commented. They even tithe the spices and the anise and all of that. I mean, they were very careful in those things. Uh, were they involved in very aggressive mission outreach projects? Remember what Jesus said. You send people throughout the world to win one convert. And when you do, you make him twice as deserving as going to hell as you yourselves. Okay, so they were trying to reach the world with a message. It just happened to be the wrong message. Did they keep the law? Boy, did they try. If you've ever read the Mishnah, I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rules to help them keep the Sabbath so that they wouldn't break the rules. They're very careful about these things. Were they Bible students? Remember the verse we read? You search the scriptures because you think in them you find eternal life. You missed the forest from the trees. They're all about me. But they were reading their Bibles. They knew their Bibles forwards and backwards. Did they keep the Sabbath? Absolutely. Uh, if you read the uh, description of Jesus' death in John, uh, the people came by to break legs of the men hanging on the cross. Why did they come by to break legs? Because they're going to be late for the Sabbath if those men don't die. Okay, so they were so serious about the Sabbath, they came by to break legs, to get home, to worship who? God. Who's God? The one they just crucified. I mean, what does this say about the horrible thing that had gone on? We talked about the sin problem. Lies about the character of God. Broken love and trust and rebellion. But notice, the Pharisees 
had worked so hard to keep the outward acts of rebellion in check. They'd made so many rules, so many lists, going to church, paying tithe, keeping the Sabbath, but yet in their heart, they were complete rebels. And so I think one reason God waited to come when he did is uh, he showed what he really wants is a new heart, a right spirit, a trusting relationship. He wants things that are centered on knowing the truth about God, having a trusting, loving relationship with God. And these people, even though outwardly they were doing so many good things, on the inside they did not know God. And that would not have been answered if Jesus had come uh, before the flood. So anyway, we'll notice something though. God sends the flood and every time in the Bible it would seem that God intervenes in a desperate circumstance like this. I mean, what is God supposed to do? It's down to one man, got to rescue him. He intervenes by using his power and we'll notice in every single instance when God does that, in the short term, it doesn't work. There's never a revival. There's never a great God movement. After that, it causes fear because what's the next story? Tower of Babel. Why did they build that tower? Because they loved God. They wanted a place where they could all come together in this big tower and talk about God and his character. Uh, no, let's build this tower. Let's get as far away. Maybe he sends another flood. Wouldn't it be good to be in a high place? So this was not built, built uh, for uh, pure, uh, wonderful motives. Okay, so when God uses his power like this in the short term, uh, it actually is, uh, seems to have a negative impact in the world. So there's a lot of fear. And this next verse is shocking. If you haven't read this in Joshua, it's so helpful to read the whole Bible and then to put in all these details. Because notice, after the Tower of Babel, several generations later, we come to Abraham. And listen to this description. Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. Long ago, your ancestors Terah and his sons Abraham and Nahor lived on the other side of the Euphrates. And what are they doing? And served other gods. Abraham and his family serving other gods. But notice, but I took your ancestor Abraham from the other side of the Euphrates. I led him through all of Canaan and gave him many descendants. I also gave him Isaac. And so... Uh, as horrible as it might seem, even Abraham's descendants, I mean, they're serving other gods. And so God has to, again, it almost seems like here, desperate circumstance, but now he's got one, Abraham. He's got someone that he can work with. And so he calls Abraham out. And I just want to think about what, what made Abraham uh, so special. He's trumpeted all the way through the Bible as our hero of faith, the father of many nations, And let's read this description here in Genesis 15. The Lord took him outside and said, look at the sky and try to count the stars. You will have as many descendants as that. Abraham put his trust in the Lord. And because of this, the Lord was pleased with him and accepted him. Then the Lord said to him, I am the Lord who led you out of Ur in Babylonia to give you this land as your own. But Abraham asked, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that it will be mine? Abraham, man of great faith, trust, well, he needed a little more trust, right? How can I know for sure, God? And notice how God answered his question. I find this fascinating. I didn't understand this for a long time until someone wrote a really good article about it. But this is how God gave him some evidence. He answered, bring me a cow, a goat, and a ram, each of them three years old, and a dove and a pigeon. <clears throat> Abram brought the animals to God, cut them in half, and placed the halves opposite each other <clears throat> in two rows. 
Now, what's really interesting about this is apparently in that time, if a stronger king defeated a weaker king, <clears throat> uh, what would happen is they would have this kind of ceremony. They'd cut these animals in half and the king that lost would walk through the split animals. Okay, And it was a vow to the stronger king, which was this. May all this and more happen to me, the weaker king, if I do not fulfill my promise. Okay, may all this horrible thing, may this happen to me if I don't fulfill my promise and we have this treaty and so on. So who would you expect then to walk through these split animals? I mean, we have the God of the universe and we have his creature, Abraham. But notice what happens. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch suddenly appeared and passed between the pieces of the animals. Who passed through those split animals? God here symbolized as a flaming torch is the one who passes through. And I find this all the way through the Bible. Uh, the principle of God's kingdom is love and service for others and that the stronger serves the weaker. This was totally countercultural here for God, God of the universe, to be the one that passes through the split animals. It should have been Abraham, but God does it. Okay, we don't, I don't think we really, I don't know if we believe this today, but uh, the words here about Jesus, I love this in Philippians, that describe his great condescension. The stronger serves the weaker. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or from a cheap desire to boast, but be humble towards one another, always considering others better than yourselves. Do we do that? And look out for one another's interests, not just for your own. The attitude you should have is the one that Christ Jesus had. What attitude did Christ Jesus have? He always had the nature of God, but he did not think that by force he should try to remain equal with God. He is equal with God, but notice what he did. Instead of this, of his own free will, he gave up all he had and took the nature of a servant. He became like a human being and appeared in human likeness. He was humble and walked the path of obedience all the way to death, his death on the cross. So it fits all the way through. It was God who became a servant and who ultimately died. The stronger serves the weaker. No greater love uh, than to lay down your life for another. Even way back in Genesis, I mean, if we don't understand the, the time, then that little ceremony doesn't make any sense. But I think Abraham must have thought, wow, this is really remarkable that I'm not the one walking through these split animals. <clears throat> and the greatest compliment of all about Abraham. And the scripture came true that said, Abraham believed God, and because of his faith, God accepted him as righteous. And so Abraham was called God's friend. Could there be any greater compliment than to be identified as that person is a friend of God? Now, as you think about the story of Abraham, though, what evidence is there for that? Can you think of anything that happened uh, in Abraham's life, in his story? What would you point to and say, oh, that's a good example that Abraham was God's friend? Any stories come to mind? Yeah, do you have one? Yeah, okay, we'll talk about that with Isaac. Um, any other examples that would say, yes, Abraham was a friend of God? What would you look for in someone to say, yes, they're a friend of God? I'll tell you the one I like. You remember God came to tell his friend Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah, but do you remember Abraham's response? I mean, you don't question God, right? God says something, you, okay, you're God. Uh, but notice Abraham's response. Surely you wouldn't do such a thing 
destroying the righteous along with the wicked? Why, you would be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Would you say that to God if he came to you in the evening and told you about some plan and uh, you said, you can't do that? I mean, surely the judge of the earth has to do what is right. Can you talk with God that way? Does Genesis 18, verse 26, the next verse, uh, include a word from God? Uh, now, Abraham, that's very disrespectful. Do not talk with me that way. No, that's not the next verse. It just goes right on. They had this conversation. All right? But, I mean, really, let's just imagine, uh, those of you going into the, the medical field, I mean, just imagine somehow you've had to take care of a... Uh, maybe a family that was killed by a drunk driver. You've been somehow involved in the care of the only surviving daughter, and somehow she died. Now, if you went home that night and you want to talk to God about this, um, I mean, does God, uh, would he prefer when you pray that night that maybe you talk about the missionaries in Africa um, or the problem of world hunger? Would God be offended if you said, I am upset about what happened. I'm angry. And God, I don't know how you could let this happen. I mean, is God even honored when we have that passion? Can you really talk with God that way? Well, we'll notice all of the people who are labeled in the Bible as God's friends, that they talk very openly and honestly with God. I'll give you just one other example. Moses. We'll talk about this uh, next week a little bit. But when things weren't going very well, look how Moses talked with God. Then Moses turned to the Lord again and said, Lord, why do you mistreat your people? Why did you send me here? Ever since I went to the king to speak for you, he has treated them cruelly, and you have done nothing to help them. And again, the next verse is not a rebuke from God, but, okay, Moses, I'll help you. These, this is how friends talk. I mean, if you have a friend, right, aren't you completely open and honest? God knows what's on your heart anyway, right? So why not just be open and honest about it? So this kind of, uh, when people talk with God this way, it says they know the kind of person that God is. They know that they can freely converse with God in this way. This is the way friends talk. So this is why I think Abraham, uh, such a compliment here to be called a friend of God. Well, you brought up the story of Abraham and Isaac. So I want to talk about that because this is another uh, difficult story, but I want to understand a little bit uh, what was the reason God came and asked Abraham to sacrifice his son? God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. Now, sometimes we read these stories and we, we know what happened, and so we don't uh, so much think about what we would do in that setting. And I don't know how many of you here are parents, but if uh, if God came to you in the middle of the night tonight and said, I'd like you to go sacrifice your son or your daughter. Um, would you do it? If you really were a person of faith, uh, would you be out the door? Or in the bedroom next door, whatever. Um, what do you think? Would you do it? I have to make this very real here. I have three kids, and so I put a picture here. And I just imagine here, uh, my older daughter, Christina, I remember Isaac was a little older, uh, Caleb here and James. And uh, I have to imagine here uh, a voice in the night telling me, I'd like you to sacrifice one of your children. Would it be the right thing to do? Did Abraham do it? He was up the next morning. 
um, with his son Isaac. We don't have any, uh, any conversation recorded. In Hebrews, we have it recorded that Abraham thought, well, maybe he can resurrect my son Isaac. But he was out the door. Why do you think God did this? Did God have a pretty good idea of what Abraham would do, what his response would be? We have to think of God always wanting to provide evidence, to answer questions. And remember, we read the verse in Joshua that just said even Abraham and his family were serving other gods. So somehow God has to break out of the mold. And uh, I like the term here, God the iconoclast. I don't know if you're familiar with this term, but an iconoclast, here's the definition, one who destroys religious images, one who attacks settled beliefs or institutions. God is the ultimate iconoclast. He has to somehow, I mean, remember, in the minds of everyone else, there are hundreds and hundreds of gods. Abraham just happens to have one god of all of the other gods. What was the, what is generally the model of all of the other gods in the Old Testament? If you could just pick one word to describe the model of every other false religious system. And I would say basically it is the appeasement model. Was child sacrifice common in that time? Extremely common. All the way through the Old Testament, the ultimate honor that you could give a God was to kill your own children. I mean, such a, such a high, noble thing. You would even kill your own children to your God. Uh, that really says something about your devotion. Let's read a, a verse here in Second Kings to illustrate that. When the king of Moab realized that he was losing the battle, he's fighting with the Israelites. He took 700 swordsmen with him and tried to force his way through the enemy lines and escape to the king of Syria, but he failed. Now notice what he did. So he took his oldest son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him on the city wall as a sacrifice to the god of Moab. The Israelites were terrified, and so they drew back from the city and returned to their own country. Why were they terrified? Unfortunately, they were not yet of the mindset that there's only one true God. No, they're out fighting the Moabites, and now the king has just done the ultimate thing, the ultimate devotion. He's killed his own son publicly on the wall, and they run in terror because, look, now what is the God of Moab going to do? We better get out of here. Right? Again, this was the highest act of devotion. In Jeremiah, God describes they built altars to Baal and Hinnom Valley to sacrifice their sons and daughters to the god Moloch. This was the god who they would heat up his hot, fiery hands and they would place the babies in there as a sacrifice. I did not command them to do this and it did not even enter my mind that they would do such a thing. It's an interesting way of God describing things and make the people of Judah sin. Hey, again, how common was this? Even King Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, eventually because of his wives who served these gods, he himself was involved in this practice. So the words here you're all familiar with in Micah, very, very significant. What shall I bring to the Lord, the God of heaven, when I come to worship him? What should we bring? Shall I bring in the best calves to burn his offerings to him? Will the Lord be pleased if I bring him thousands of sheep or endless streams of olive oil? Shall I offer him my firstborn child to pay for my sins? Well, should we? No, the Lord has told us what is good. What he requires of us is this, to do what is just, to show constant love, and to live in humble fellowship with our God. So the words are there. The words are there. Don't kill your firstborn. I don't need to be appeased. The words are there. But how can God really make the point? 
And I think how God really makes the point is he's always giving evidence, evidence, evidence. If you were a person living in Abraham's time and you know the, knew this story about Abraham and Isaac, wouldn't you be able to say, well, there is one unique thing about the God of Abraham. He doesn't need uh, child sacrifice. I mean, wasn't that very clear from the whole story? He doesn't need the death of the firstborn. There's the lamb. God will provide in some way. And so God really goes on record saying, I am different than all of these other gods. Please don't do that anymore. I will provide. And so it's not just in words and claims, but in a very compelling story, I think, that God makes the point, please don't do this. I'm not a God of appeasement. And I think that's the point we should be taking away uh, from the story. Now, in case we don't think that God really uses these methods, because, I mean, what a torturous time it was uh, for Abraham walking up there with his son, I want to just conclude with God in human form doing very much the same thing, making a very powerful teaching point. And this is the story of Jesus and the Canaanite woman. And imagine you're there. You don't know the end of the story. You're just watching this. And you remember this woman that came up. I mean, she's a woman for one thing, and she's Canaanite, heathen. And so the disciples really looking down their noses at this woman. And, uh, but Jesus did not say a word to her. Why not? Why didn't he stand up for her? And his disciples came to him and begged him, send her away, she's following us and making all this noise. And then Jesus replied. Now Jesus, as we know Jesus, how would he respond to a poor woman, disciples, um, you know, get rid of this woman, don't help her. How would Jesus reply? This is how he replied. I have been sent only to the lost sheep of the people of Israel. Isn't that kind of shocking? Jesus just immediately be there to help? What's he doing? At this, the woman came and fell at his feet. Help me, sir, she said. And Jesus answered. Now, haven't some of you read somewhere? I mean, if you come to God sincerely, help. How, isn't God always there to respond to that kind of a prayer? How do you think Jesus responded to this woman? Help me, sir. In Jesus' words, it isn't right to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Did Jesus want this woman to get down and beg like a dog? Why is he treating her this way? Well, fortunately, she didn't walk away and leave. She said, that's true, sir, she answered, but even the dogs eat the leftovers that fall from their master's table. So Jesus answered her, you are a woman of great faith. What you want will be done for you. And at that very moment, her daughter was healed. I think Jesus here is doing, again, iconoclastic methods. But notice, who does he use iconoclastic methods with? People of great faith. Abraham and this woman, this heathen woman who was a woman of great faith. And what he did was he totally went with the disciples' uh, horrible view of women, of heathen, and he seemed to play right into it. And it's almost like he builds up this big false image and then shatters it. And don't you think at that point the disciples, I mean, their whole view of how to treat women and the heathen, it, it had just been destroyed. And so I think these are actually effective teaching mechanisms that God uses, not just claims, but demonstration. Abraham, Isaac, here Jesus and the Canaanite woman, and um, that uh, to try to break out of the old model and to bring us into a new way of thinking about things. All right, let's pray as we conclude. Father, thank you so much for giving us so much evidence. And please help us to have open minds to be willing to see you in a new way. Help us to always hold to you, Jesus, as the great light evidence 
of who you are in character. And may that light open up many doors. May that light spread throughout our entire existence. And may we be created anew to have the law of love written within us. We love you, God. Amen.